Okay. This is a passage this morning that has a lot to say to us about sex and sexuality and um, the gift of sex. So that's why I've titled the message, uh, The Gift of Sex. I want to start, though, with a paradigm, which is a, a framing, a way of thinking about this, so that we're moving through, um, not just last week, but uh, this week and the weeks ahead, uh, with a proper kind of lens through which to understand what we're reading and how to interpret it and how to apply it. So the simplest way, and I think this is helpful from my um, background in Christian University, the simplest way to think about the entire meta-narrative, the big story um, of the Bible, is it's centered around three words, creation, fall, and redemption. And each of those words are really pregnant with significance for all of reality, but this morning we're, sort of, we're going to look through the lens of creation, fall, redemption at the topic of our embodied uh, sexuality and sex. So the, the first pillar is creation. That God is the creator of all things, and that creation reflects his glory. And what's really important to note is that our sexuality is part of our total being. It's not merely a fleshly or evil or bad part of us. It actually reflects the image of God in us. Sex and sexuality is embedded into the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, before there's a fall into sin. So our embodied sexuality is something profoundly good, something that God says at the end of Genesis 1. He looked at all that he had made and said, it is tov tov, it is good, good. But in Genesis 3, we read about this fall into sin, this entrance of sin into the world because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And this has profound consequences. It's kind of a domino effect that touches and distorts every aspect of our life. It doesn't undo the original goodness of God's creation, but it twists it, it distorts it, it perverts it in certain ways. And then what happens is in Genesis 4 all the way through 11, we see that sin begins to impact not just individuals, not just family units, not just social units, but the whole world. There's this um, progressive unfolding of the negative effects of sin. It, it, uh, it impacts every aspect of life from institutions to culture to human relationships. And so these first, sort of the Genesis kind of 4 through 11 really paint this dark picture of our need for redemption. That though God created everything good, we have unleashed a tsunami of suffering and evil into creation. But that isn't the end of the story. It's not like God made the picture to use Pauline's analogy and we came and scribbled on it. And it's like, well, I guess that's just the way it's going to be. What are you going to do? No, God begins actively to redeem. Actually, even at the end of Genesis chapter 3, there's a grace note where God covers Adam and Eve's uh, sin with animal coverings, which means there had to have been a sacrifice. God himself provides a sacrifice to cover and atone for the um, sinful actions of Adam and Eve. So they can go, they can leave the garden, but they can survive and they can have a future. God begins to redeem what was damaged by sin. And that restoration doesn't just involve individual souls, but actually the entire created world. 
um, all the ways in which the fall has affected our at-homeness. When, you, when we've, we're kind of kicked out of Eden, as it were, we all have this sense of alienation. That we're, 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 A lot of what we do is looking to um, re-secure a homecoming of sorts. And we experience this disconnection, this side of, of that story, where even our bodies and our sexuality are an arena where we sometimes have a hard time feeling comfortable, feeling at peace. The uh, Dutch Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper wrote that God's agenda is to regain creation. Creation is tov tov, it's good, it's been marred by our sin. But God cares about not just humanity, but creation and all of the ways it's been affected by sin. And he wants to regain it, he wants to get it back. And so redemption is not the abandonment of the created order. It doesn't say, well, all God's interested in, in is our souls, and then the rest of this world's just going to burn, so whatever. Actually, it's God. A redemption means cooperating with God to take back what was lost, to, in a sense, recapture Eden. Or as Jesus said, um, to pray, um, I'm totally blanking. Uh, 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 May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That Jesus didn't, didn't teach his disciples to pray, God, take us away to heaven really quick, as soon as possible, please. It's, well, actually, you infuse this world with the life of heaven, the redeeming, healing, gracious power of heaven. And that redemptive work, ultimately, as the biblical story unfolds, it, it reaches its climax at the cross through Christ's uh, redemptive work through his life and death and resurrection. And that view, this idea of redemption, again, I want you to hear that it's holistic and it's meant to be transformative. It goes beyond just a, I just pray a prayer so that I'm personally saved and, uh, for my future in the afterlife, but it actually means I'm being enlisted as an ambassador of Christ to move into the world, into all arenas of my life, and participate in the renewal and restoration of all things. And that includes how we understand our bodies, how we experience our bodies, how we express our embodied humanity, how we understand and express our sexuality. So this vision calls us as Christians to speak honestly and uh, frankly and with integrity around what does it look like to recognize that our embodied sexuality is good, but that it has been distorted to a greater or lesser extent, but that God actively wants to redeem it. Now, I want you to think about how this framework, just this alone, challenges anything else out there in the field of um, philosophy, uh, of the body, uh, other religious traditions around sexuality in the body, right? I mean, our culture has a little bit of the creation part right, even though they don't attribute it to God, but they would say, no, our sexuality is good, Um, but it really rejects any any kind of a higher purpose for sexuality and sexual design other than procreation and pleasure-seeking. There's really nothing close to what we looked at in the last chapter, where sex is designed to be a, a generative unifying force where two people, a man and a woman in marriage, become one flesh. There's a mysterious... Um, synergy that happens there. Our culture has no framework for the fall. We don't even want to talk about the word sin. 
Um, that seems outdated, outmoded, um, too traditional. But when you lose that framework, that pillar, then really there's nothing wrong or sinful about our sexuality. There's nothing really that needs to be restrained or redirected or resisted or reorientated. As long as it's consensual and it's safe, then your body is yours to use. Um, so there's no real grappling with ways in which our sexuality is distorted. And because there's no framework for the fall, there's really no idea for redemption. There's no way of thinking that actually allows people to say, how do I recover from the wounds that happen physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, when I ignore God's design and live fully into a paradigm of sex in the body that starts and ends with, I'm going to do what seems right in my own eyes. There's a massive fallout that happens, maybe not immediately, but eventually, that touches you, relationships, your sense of identity and purpose, everything. It's, it's, a, it's a, how we understand and use our sexuality has profound ramifications for our lives. But the culture doesn't really offer, and it can't offer, a redemptive framework. So if you don't hear anything else this morning, just hear that the Bible is one of the most sophisticated um, sex-positive books in the sense that it gives us a framework through which to understand how to receive the gift of sex and sexuality in a way that actually contributes constructively, builds us up, sustains us in ways that matter, actually fulfills us, that doesn't lead to a cycle of uh, uh, shame and guilt and um, damage such that we have to just simply numb ourselves and say, well, this is just the way it is. I'm just going to sort of, no disassociation actually uh, builds into us a more fundamental humanness. And so what we're seeing in these chapters in 1 Corinthians, I want you to understand is that this is God instructing his church through Paul how to participate in God's redemptive vision for sexuality, how to align yourself with God's restorative agenda for how we understand and experience and use our bodies. And so there are lots of warnings in this passage. And if you jump into this passage and read some things, you can go wrong in all kinds of ways because they're not passages that are filled with warnings designed to make us fear or avoid bodily pleasure or sex. They are written to help us understand and practice sex in a way that honors God in a way that honors our own bodies, and in a way that leads to healthy, shame-free pleasure and life. I mean, sometimes literally in the creation of new life, but also the vibrancy that comes in a marriage when a husband and a wife have learned how to live into that vision of two becoming one and express uh, blessing and vulnerability and exchange pleasure, uh, give and receive pleasure, uh, to and with each other. So in 1 Corinthians 6, if you weren't here last week, Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to take hold of a few key principles related to their sexuality. He confronts this, this, this idea, well, everything's permissible. And that was in the Corinthian culture, but it had also seeped into the church in the sense that some Christians were kind of thinking, well, if Jesus died for my sins, then I can do whatever I want and God will forgive me. So everything's permissible. Paul doesn't confront that directly. He actually goes to a higher principle. So he says, you guys say everything is permissible, but 
not everything's beneficial. As a Christian, you should be asking that. What actually strengthens my faith in my life? You guys say everything is permissible, but you shouldn't be mastered by anything. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. One of the ways you know you're going against God's design for your body, whether it's in the area of food or substances or um, sex, is that you become mastered by those things. You don't have the ability to say no to your cravings and desires. When they well up, you just sort of get pulled down the current of the river. Paul says, no, a Christian must not be mastered by their desires or their impulses. And then he says, provocatively, your body and your sexuality are actually for the Lord and for his glory. That's why if you've been following in the New City Catechism that I've been posting on the Facebook group and working through with Jeff and Cole um, every week, number one question, what is our only hope in life and death? We belong, does anyone know the next part? We belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ. We don't belong soul to Jesus and then our bodies, like whatever. All of who we are, our embodied personhood, belongs to Jesus. And we seek to glorify him through our bodies. And so Paul says, you're not your own. If you're a Christian, when you were baptized, you gave up your right to say, well, this is my life. I will live it as I see fit. And you started the journey of saying, that's the way I used to think. Now that I'm in Christ, I'm learning slowly but steadily what it means to follow Jesus into all these areas of life. How do I live for his glory? What does it mean to be truly human? And to, in a healthy way, um, call into question the modes of activity, the modes of the postures of the heart that previously I just thought, yeah, that's me. That's just the way I'm entitled to live. Is it? What does God's word say? And so he says, there's going to be two major principles that are going to define every Christian's relationship to their body and sexuality. The first is that you're going to flee from sexual immorality, porneia. Porneia is that Greek word that means it just covers, it's, it's the biggest tent word you can come up with for any kind of sexual play, sexual engagement outside of man, woman, married, covenant relationship. So it doesn't matter what the particular, the details are, anything other than that is porneia. So for modern believers, good uh, to start with the literal, to flee from pornography. It's massively damaging on all kinds of levels but to also flee from any expression of sexuality that God has said, I will not bless and I will not, um, it won't be life-giving because it's not aligned with God's redemptive purposes. And then the second one is just generally honor God with your body. Your body is a gift. And so from how you move to the food you put into it, to how you care for it, how you express it and use it in the world, these are all important parts of your worship. That's a big key coming out of Romans 12. So in chapter 7, what Paul is doing is he's saying, here's how these principles are expressed within marriage. So I'm going to read through it. You can follow along. Then we'll break it down. Now for the matters you wrote about, and then he quotes something that they had sent him in a letter. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul continues, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Don't 
Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, one has another. Again, at first pass, without that framing, this might not feel like the most um, sort of sex-positive, enriching vision for sexuality, but there's a lot here if we hold and stay with the text. So verse number one, last week we had this saying, everything's permissible. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. God, God only cares about your soul, so whatever. Your body's going to burn and not last into eternity. That was the conventional thought. That's one way of thinking about sexuality. And here's the other way, which is that it's something defiling and dirty. It's actually best, or it's good, or tov tov, it's very good for a man not to, and the word in Greek is touch, which is a euphemism for sexual relations. So that's why in some of your translations, it'll say touch and not sexual relations. But it's meaning that, that the ideal is that no, to be a spiritual person is to not be defiled by sexual uh, contact at all. Even if, you're even if you're married, the way that you would show, according to this view, your spiritual maturity is that you would just put to death the sexual exchange in the relationship and pursue higher spiritual things. And Paul says, well, you, there's a lot of immorality occurring, so each man should have sexual relations with his wife and each woman her husband. Now again, notice what's not being said. He's not saying, totally agree with that. Sexual desires, oof, gross, icky, wrong. Ooh, part of the false, sinful. Ugh. Absolutely, that's the ideal. He's like, no, sexual desires are good, but they require a container in order to be generative, in order to be healthy. And that container is a covenant marriage. Husband to wife, wife to husband. In that context, that's the only context in which sex can actually both short, medium, and long-term, be experienced as healthy, holy, redemptive, and restorative. Then in verse 3, Paul says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. This is very controversial, but probably inversely to how it's controversial to many people today. Why do you think this is controversial 2,000 years ago? Any ideas? Verse 3. Yep, that's, that's a big one. So there's an immediate addressing of the husband first. And what, what is being, um, what's being shooted there to the husband? What's that? His duty. You, as a married Christian man, have an obligation to be sexually available and to pleasure your wife sexually. There is nothing like that in the ancient world. There is no, there is no, there is no command. The husband's body is his own to do with as he pleases. The wife's body is for the husband. This is a Greco-Roman understanding. The wife's body is for the husband to do with as he pleases. And Paul starts by saying, you husbands have a role. And this comes out of Ephesians 5, right? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
this is a prof- we don't see it as such. We don't have the lens for it. And it might actually strike us as sex negative because we focus on the, the next part. Oh, the wife needs to provide her duty to the husband. But this is actually a massive principle of mutual sexual exchange and pleasure and intention in marriage. And it's given first to the husband. Then in verse 4, Paul says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority of his own body, but yields it to his wife. Again, controversial. If you're a third or fourth wave feminist, you're going to pick up on the first part of that verse. If you are a Greco-Roman, raised in a Greco-Roman Corinthian society and you become a Christian, that first part of the verse, that's, that's just the way life was. It's the second part of the verse that makes every man's ear prick up in the room. What do do you mean? My wife has authority over my body. I'm going to need you. That's the record scratch moment for people hearing this text. Again, mutuality. Roman world, highly hierarchical. Family structure, highly hierarchical. And it's not man and woman at the top. It's man at the top. And here Paul is saying something very profound about the mutuality that is meant to be expressed in marriage. The empowerment here to Christian women in marriages is, we have to do a little bit of digging to see it, but once you see it, you begin to realize, wow, this is profound. And there's no one else, to my knowledge, maybe I'm wrong, I have not seen any other documentation of ancient texts. I'm no expert. I don't have a PhD or anything. I'm just saying I expose myself to this kind of stuff pretty consistently. I've been a pastor for 20 years. I've never come across ancient sources that use this kind of language in terms of the obligation of a husband to his wife and the authority of a wife over her husband's body. That is bonkers crazy. I mean, it really honestly is. What Paul is saying here is that there is a responsibility that you have. It's part of your vows. It's a responsibility that you have, both male and female, man and woman, to sexually fulfill your spouse. Yes, there are issues of illness. There are issues of aging. There are issues of stress, changes in the body. There's seasons of relational discord. And all of those things are genuine and real complications to a healthy and thriving sexual dynamic, but those things should actually be addressed in a Christian marriage so that it doesn't impede healthy sexual dynamic, which is going to look different for every couple. But the principle here is that one of the priorities that a Christian husband and a Christian wife should be doing, not by badgering the other person, but by taking this calling into their own hearts personally is How do I become a conduit of blessing to my spouse, generally, outside of the bedroom, but how do I become a conduit of blessing to my spouse within the bedroom? Not using sex as a reward or a punishment, but how do I let this unique one flesh power, how do I release it into my marriage? Now again, obviously, I think well, maybe more women can see this because they're more sensitized to it because there's a lot larger history and um, my pastoral experience, ways this has been abused where someone can say, oh, well, I have the right to your body. So this, you can understand how this could lead to a very non-consensual 
sexual conformity, where one person's, in a sense, leveraging scripture to um, bully the other person, coerce them. Look, at you have, you have a duty. And so, rightly, some people have looked at this verse and said, oh, this is rife for potential abuse. To which I would say, oh, absolutely. Just like any other Bible verse that you completely extract is rife for potential for abuse. This is why it's important to actually read all of, especially the New Testament letters, because it's not going to be very long before you get to chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians. And if you haven't read that since your wedding day, you're going to remember that it's a definition of what love is. And it says love is kind, love is not self-seeking, and love always protects. So Paul does not mean here this mechanical bullying, well, just exert your, you're, you're entitled to your spouse's body, so just go after it and do whatever you need to do. No, he's going to say this has to be understood within the context of love. And a married Christian man will never coerce his wife into doing anything that is unkind, that isn't protective, that is self-seeking, and vice versa. And so this is not about forcing or having a view that you are sexually entitled to your spouse's body. It's to start with the spouse and to say, I have a responsibility. Taking into account all the different pressures that are happening in my life. But part of my responsibility is to be, is to learn how to cultivate sexual availability and sexual eagerness towards my spouse. Paul says in verse 5, do not deprive one another. Notice that sex is not just about making babies. Paul says, don't, don't deprive one another. He doesn't say, oh, only have sex is a chance of procreation. No, this is why we would reject the Catholic view that says, the only way that sex is redemptive is if it leads to new life. But no, sexual pleasure was there way before the fall and before uh, Adam and Eve have their first children. It's a unitive experience. It's a powerful experience and exchange of pleasure and vulnerability. It's a mutually unifying pleasure. And so, in a sense, the command here is to adapt and grow in your ability to understand your spouse's body and how to uh, bless them and pleasure them sexually. And then he says in verse 5 that, that, that there is a viable option for a sexual pause, and that is if you want to enter into an extended time of prayer. Again, not because sex and prayer are mutually oppositional forces, but just like fasting, right? I mean, this is a call to sexually fasting. We fast in order to leverage the discomfort of, oh, I'm really hungry physically, or oh, I'm really hungry sexually, or oh, I'm really wanting to um, numb out and go on my phone. We fast from those things in order to redirect that discomfort and that energy into prayer. But then Paul says, and I love this, he says, uh, but this is just a, this is kind of my suggestion. It's not even a command. Paul is like super realistic. He's like, I've, I've been doing this long enough to know some of you can't even separate for, for prayer. Uh, <laughs> you can't, you know, there's lots of passion. That's good. So he's like, this is, again, kind of like my ideal, but this isn't a command from God, right? You've got that um, saying that I think young life, warns their young leaders about is that the couple who prays together lays together, right? Prayer can be a, a pretty powerful, both aphrodisiac and um, foreplay. 
And so even here, you're getting a, a, a nod to that where Paul's like, if you can just take a break for a few days or a few weeks, focus it into prayer, awesome. But that's not for everybody. And he says, I, no, you know, people have different gifts. And later on in Corinthians, he's going to say, I would love it if everyone could be like me in the sense of being celibate and single and devote themselves completely to God and not have what he's going to call the trouble of marriage be holding you back. But again, the overall theme here is that he's like, but sex is, uh, that sexual desire is a good thing. It's good to find it in marriage. Uh, marriage isn't something to be avoided by Christians, but he'll later say it's also not something to be um, desperately grasping for either. We place our identity in Christ. We seek to love and honor God in seasons of singleness. There's a particular way to do that by honoring our body. And in seasons where we're married, we do that by moving into some of these priorities. So what can we learn from these verses? A lot, and they're, and they're good to think through and meditate on and to discuss. But I really want to underscore that these verses help us to see, I hope, in a new way, like the gift that sex is supposed to be within a covenant marriage. And by covenant, I mean this lifelong commitment, this whole person commit to the other person. Marriage is meant to be an arena of increasing physical and sexual security, increasing sexual safety, increasing sexual creativity, and increasing sexual pleasure that fosters and reinforces that one flesh unity. Right? This is why sexuality continues even past years where it's possible to have a child. Because it's designed to be a sacred space of unifying security, safety, creativity, and pleasure. Every time you are engaging in the sexual act with your spouse, what you are saying to them is, I choose you. I'm, you're reaffirming in the sense that um, that initial covenant that you made in marriage. It's a, it's a kind of a covenant renewal ceremony. You know those people who get married and then they have like a, a second kind of renewal of the vows? And that's kind of neat. And there's different ways to, to think about that. But that's actually what the sexual exchange is meant to be. And that's why it's meant to be done as consistently as the rhythm of the relationship and life uh, permits. Because you're saying to the other person, I love you, I'm with you, and creating the context where either false or mixed messages connected to our bodies or our sexuality have corrupted our hearts or past trauma or abuse have impeded our ability to enter into a sexual dynamic that is safe and healing and restorative. And so sex is meant to be a deeply pleasurable experience in marriage. Of course, I'm not naive. There's different tension points and awkwardness, of course, and certainly conflicts. And that might require therapy and couples counseling. But it really is designed to be an arena, an avenue of pleasure that unifies a husband and wife in a way that no other activity you can do with anyone else does. But I also want to acknowledge that there are messages that we all receive from our family of origins, from maybe our church upbringing, 
from what's said, what isn't said, how it's said, the tone, the body posture, even the way that we move through our early experiences in childhood, studying how the people around us even experience their own bodies, not even sexually, just how comfortable they are in their own skin. Those all have layering effects on how we understand and experience our bodies and our sexuality. That's taken to a whole new level of our early childhood experiences around the body include abuse, um, mistreatment. Those can really interfere with that level of comfort and the enjoyment of our bodies and sexuality that God wants to redeem us into. But that's important to understand as well. God's redemptive work in our lives will include redeeming our understanding of our bodies and sexuality. It'll include redeeming our experiences of sexuality. It'll include it'll include uh, redeeming our expressions of our body and our sexuality. And that means the brokenness that maybe we have experienced or the wounds that have been inflicted by a fallen world or fallen people, um, the distortions that have come through because of sin, that actually those can all come under the redemptive banner of Christ. And none of those things actually have to be the defining thread of your um, embodied sexual story. Those, those things do not have to have the final word. I want to share with you some resources that I think are top-notch, very helpful. Uh, probably the gold standard for Christian sex books is written by the Penners, not Rick and Karis, uh, Clifford and Joyce. <laughs> Uh, two men, uh, awesome Mennonite couple, uh, The Gift of Sex, The Guide to Sexual Fulfillment. Uh, I have not ever actually read this book until this week, and I'm only about halfway through. It is phenomenally good. It's almost always at the top of best Christian uh, sex books or books for um, newly engaged or newly married couples. Or uh, It's not just for newly, uh, newlyweds, though. This is a fantastic book. It is uh, blunt, it is honest, it is pastoral, it is deeply wise, it is really fantastic in terms of a theology of the body and sexuality, has some really gracious, deeply discerning and wise reflections on dynamics related to aging, changes in our body, um, ways of understanding and thinking about self-stimulation, it's, it's a kind of a comprehensive guide to sexuality and it's a, from a Christian perspective and it, it would be, I mean, I'm only halfway through, I've kind of skimmed some of the other stuff, but it's fantastic and highly, highly commended. The other uh, two books that are, um, I have not read, but they are often in the top three of a number of people that I follow on this are Intended for Pleasure by Ed and Gail Wheat. And Christian Cosmo, The Sex Talk You Never Had by Felicia Masonheimer. That last one is especially um, resonant with a lot of uh, women. Although all of these are, from what I can gather, again, not having read the, the previous the last two, can't miss. Uh, for married couples, you've got the Ultimate Intimacy app, which is free. And it's a really great, um, playful, fun, creative way to, uh, if, 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 you're, if embodied uh, sexual and non-sexual touch, if, if that arena, you just honestly are like, I or we are not really that creative, 
this has everything from dares to challenges. It's fun. It's non-graphic um, instructions regarding different positions you can try. It's a Christian couple that is really, really um, thoughtful and wise. So it, it does a really good job of, of um, reinforcing a healthy sexuality and providing prompts, especially maybe for couples who are uh, maybe stuck in a rut that way. Also, I would say the gift of sex, just while I think about it, uh, the gift of sex, you can, um, that, that's an absolutely a resource that teenagers can and probably should read. It's very, very well done. It is, um, you know, it, it, it's not pornographic in any, even the broadest sense of, of, the, of the term, but it's forthright. And it's really, really has some excellent um, theology and philosophy about how we understand and experience our bodies. That would definitely be one um, that you could uh, gift to your teenager or just say, hey, if you have questions, you could go into it and then discuss that. Um, yeah, it's a really good resource. Uh, the Marriage Bed is another one. Christian couple who has accumulated a massive directory of Christian, biblical, sex positive, everything from, yeah, this is, this is kind of like the, the Wikipedia of Christian sexuality. Again, anything from how illness affects uh, sexuality, aging, uh, stuff for parents, um, things for uh, recovery from sexual trauma and abuse. This is, the, this is the deep dive site, really, really well done. And I think it's especially important for those of us who, who maybe um, picked up somehow that sex and embodied sexuality is just an uncomfortable thing to think about or to talk about, or we have this resistance we want to avoid, is just to, to make it a pretty consistent practice to read through the Song of Songs, or in some translations, the Song of Solomon. This is an extended uh, erotic poem between two lovers, Solomon and his wife, and it really, as you move into it and through it, some of the metaphors are going to be kind of culturally difficult for you to hold together. You probably not had, hadn't ever fawned over your spouse's teeth because they look like sheep jumping through a meadow. But if you can kind of just give some grace on the, uh, the connections that are made there and um, to be in the Bible studying and reflecting and hearing and imbibing this attitude of sexuality at its core is good. To be in a place where we are, um, where we desire to connect with our spouse sexually is good. Our embodied existence is, is good. These are profound messages that don't often get um, reinforced uh, in the church and just making Song of Songs or Song of Solomon a steady diet in your Bible reading can go a long way, along with some of these other resources, to maybe just first normalizing thinking and talking about sex in your own mind, and then to be able to bring that up with your spouse, because that it can be a, an area where, again, because of awkwardness, tension, past trauma, past um, relational and different kinds of discomfort, it can kind of be a, we don't really go there anymore. So I would really encourage you to check out one of those resources and, and start somewhere. 
um, even if you're not married, to maybe get the gift of sex and begin really thinking through, why do I want to avoid porneia at this time in my life? What do I actually want to be building towards? And that's, a, again, that's, that's my go-to one. The gospel offers us a powerful story of redemption. It's a God who loves us enough to not just come near to us, but comes near to us embodied. Comes to enter our brokenness, bear the weight of our sin on a cross, rise again to declare victory. And this same gospel is a source of hope for the redemption of our sexuality. Because in Christ, and in Christ alone, can we find forgiveness for past sin and shame and guilt and brokenness, strength for the present, and hope for the future. And so our sexuality is not excluded from God's plan of restoration. It's not a realm that we're called to hide from God or to feel shameful about bringing into the light of God's grace. It's actually an area that Christ desires to bring healing and wholeness, joy and pleasure as we seek to learn what it means to express our sexuality in a way that facilitates unity in our marriages, pleasure, and yes, procreation. So as we surrender ourselves wholly to him, we can trust that his redemptive work will extend into every part of our lives, renewing and transforming us from the the inside out. And that includes our embodied sexuality. Let's pray. I'll invite the worship team to come forward. God, as we close off today, um, I pray for those places of stuckness, those places of pain, those places of trauma, those places of regret, those places of sin and shame, that we would recognize, God, that in you there is no condemnation and there is redemption. If there's people here who've never turned their lives over to you and they've been struggling to figure out how do I get out of this cycle of, um, of broken ways of understanding and using my body, may they understand that it's only going to happen when they yield themselves to you. And God, for the courage, we ask for courage, because it takes courage to open ourselves up to your influence in this area. It is an area that we often want to hide. We often want, we often feel like Adam and Eve, that we're naked and ashamed, and we want to run and hide from you. So graciously by your spirit, would you use some of these resources, maybe a conversation, maybe a scripture to just begin working something restorative and redemptive in and through us. And God, may we come to you because we trust that you are good. You are a good father that if we expose ourselves to you in this area, all that we stand to lose is that which pulls us down, restrains us from the life that is truly life. And we have everything to gain. We thank you for your goodness. Amen.